65 is where we are this evening, Isaiah chapter 65, and uh, we'll read the first five verses together, and then we'll continue on into the chapter as the Bible study progresses. Isaiah chapter 65, we're going to begin reading in verse 1, and reading down to verse 5, then we'll have a, a brief word of prayer, and we'll proceed into our study, okay? Isaiah chapter 65, verse 1. The prophet writes, I am sought of them that asked not for me. I am found of them that sought me not. I said, Behold me, behold me unto a nation that was not called by my name. I have spread out my hands all the day unto a rebellious people which walketh in a way that was not good after their own thoughts. A people that provoketh me to anger continually to my face, that sacrificeth in gardens, and burneth incense upon altars of brick, which remain among the graves, and lodge in the monuments, which eat swine's flesh, and broth of abominable things is in their vessels, which say, Stand by thyself, come not near to me, for I am holier than thou. These are a smoke in my nose, a fire that burneth all the day. Shall we pray? Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you tonight for the opportunity to meet in the Saviour's name, to meet around the Word of God. And Lord, we ask tonight that you would meet with us as we seek to draw near to you that you also, in keeping with your word, would draw near to us and that we would sense your help and your presence as we study this passage of Scripture. Lord, we're so grateful for the, this book of Isaiah, uh, for the gospel truths that it has reminded us of, of those great prophecies that pertain to the Lord Jesus as the suffering servant of the Lord, and much beside. And so, Lord, as we come to this passage tonight, we again just ask that you would open up our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from thy law. Bless us, we pray, not just for our information, but for our transformation, that we might be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> now, you might recall from chapter 64 that the godly remnant of the Jewish people had cried out in verse 1, Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens, that thou wouldest come down. And we said this was the revivalist's prayer. They were praying for God to come down among them, not just to hear their prayers from the heavens, but actually to come and tabernacle among them. And chapter 65 is God's response to that prayer. But before he details the blessings that lay ahead for the nation, he first addresses the reasons for his distress of the nation, or for their distress as a nation. So here we shall see the pardon of the Gentiles, the perversion of Israel, the punishment of the rebellious, and the prospects of the remnant. Now let's look in verse 1 at the pardon of the Gentiles. He says, I am sought of them that asked not for me. I am found of them that sought me not. I said, Behold me, behold me, unto a nation that was not called by my name. Now it's very tempting as you're reading this passage to lump verse 1 in with verses three or 2 to 5. 
as though the Lord were speaking to Israel throughout that entire uh, tract of Scripture. But actually, these two, these two, uh, these uh, two sections, verse one and then verses two to five, are speaking about two different people groups. That verse one is speaking about Gentiles is self-evident by the statement that is made at the very tail end of the verse. Uh, Unto a nation that was not called by my name. So here we have the subject of the sentence being a nation that was not called by my name. Now that could never be said of the nation of Israel. It cannot be said of the nation of Israel that they were not called by the Lord's name. Look in Isaiah chapter 43. Isaiah chapter 43. Verses 6 and 7. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, keep not back. Bring my sons from far and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Even everyone that is notice called by my name. For I have created him for my glory. I have formed him. Yea, I have made him. So clearly verse 1 then of chapter 65 is addressing non-Israelites. It's dealing with the Gentiles. And what we have set before us quite remarkably is the conversion of the Gentile peoples that is anticipated by Isaiah prophetically. He sees a day coming when God's focus will be upon the Gentiles and there will be great conversion uh, among them. And they will be the ones who, although they had not initially uh, been sought out of God uh, and had not, uh, had not asked for him, were in fact the ones who would be seeking him toward the end. Look in Romans chapter 10, if you will. Romans chapter 10. And let's see how Paul applies this tract of scripture in this epistle to the Romans. Romans chapter 10 and verses 19 through to 21. Romans chapter 10, verse 19 to to, uh, 21. He writes, But I say, did not Israel know... First Moses saith, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people, and by a foolish nation I will anger you. But Isaiah is very bold and saith, I was found of them that sought me not. I was made manifest unto them that asked not after me. But to Israel, he saith, all the day long I have stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. Do you see the distinction that he's making there? He's very clearly telling us that verse 1, of which Isaiah writes, I was found of them that sought me not, refers to non-Jews, to those who are Gentile believers, those who form the church, who are set up in order to provoke the nation of Israel to jealousy. They are described as a foolish nation here. And then verse 2 onwards, he says, is Uh, addressing Israel is concerning Israel but to Israel he saith all day long I have stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people so verse 2 onwards of our chapter is for Israel whereas verse 1 is dealing with a great Gentile harvest that comes 
first during the church age and then later at the end times when we read in Revelation 7 a great multitude which no man could number of all nations and kindreds and peoples and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white clothes and palms in their hands and cried with a loud voice saying salvation to our God which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. Now it might strike us as rather peculiar that this particular chapter would open with reference to Gentile conversion because after all you know the bulk of this scripture has been dealing with Judah and dealing with the Jews and dealing with the future of Israel and we get to this peculiar verse here in verse 1 where it speaks about the Gentiles so we might say well why is God now addressing the issue of Gentiles for the very same reason that Paul gives in Romans chapter 10 to provoke the Jews to think about the Gentiles who were not the subjects of God's privilege in the past, how they would seek him out. And then should not the Jews, unto whom was given the oracles of God, to whom was given multiple privilege, should they have not done so all the more? If the Gentiles, if the Gentiles seek him out, uh, you know, why would the Jews not seek him out? That's the obvious statement. It's a contrast. And so in verses 2 through 5, you see that they were a rebellious people. And we see the perversions of Israel. He says, I spread out my hands all the day unto a rebellious people, which walketh in a way that was not good after their own thoughts, a people that provoketh me to anger continually to my face, that sacrifices in gardens and burneth incense upon altars of brick, which remain among the graves and lodge in the monuments, which eat swine's flesh and broth of abominable things as in their vest vessels, which say, Stand by thyself, come not near to me, for I am holier than thou. These are a smoke in my nose, a fire that burneth all the day. So we see that the Lord had stretched out his hand to this rebellious people. He had sought to take them in. He had reached out to the Jews time and time and time again. He had sent prophet after prophet after prophet their way. Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 25 says, Since the day that your fathers came forth out of the land of Egypt unto this day, I have even sent unto you all my servants the prophets, daily rising up early and sending them. And you'll remember how the Lord Jesus himself condemned the Pharisees in his day, saying, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchres of the righteous and say, If we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Wherefore be ye witnesses unto yourselves that ye are the children of them which killed the prophets. They were saying, you know, we would never have done to the prophets what our fathers did to the prophets. And the Lord Jesus says, you would have done exactly what your fathers did to the prophets. You would have rejected the word of the prophets just as they did. And of course, that famous sermon by Stephen in Acts chapter 7, in which he cried out uh, before the Sanhedrin, Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before the coming of the just one, of whom you have been now the betrayers and murderers. 
So the Lord has laid out his hand, he stretched out his hand to them, and over and over again he has sought to embrace them and to have them embrace his truth as his chosen people. But notice in verse 2, Israel was guilty of walking in a way that is not good after their own thoughts. And then in verse 3, There were a people that provoketh me to anger continually to my face, that sacrificeth in gardens and burneth incense upon altars of brick. So instead of Israel responding to God in a positive fashion, they defied the invitation of God to repent and believe. They provoked the Lord. In fact, it says they provoked him to his face. And the word provoke means to irritate, to anger God by continually doing things that he finds grossly offensive. They openly rebelled before the face of God. Now, where their perverse thought life and their wandering steps took them is very clearly detailed then in verses 3 to 5. They provoked the Lord in numerous ways. They provoked him by their idolatry. Notice what they did there in verse 3. They sacrificed in gardens and burned incense upon altars of brick. Now, quite apart from anything else, to sacrifice in gardens was unauthorized as a place for sacrifice, and to build an altar of brick was also unlawful. So, you know, you think about it, we see the same thing today. Uh, If you look around the religious world today, there are grottos, aren't there, that are built in honor of saints or dedicated to pagan gods. Altars and gardens, same thing. No new thing under the sun. They provoked the Lord, notice, by their spiritism. They remained among the graves and lodged in the monuments. You know, they were engaged in some kind of death cult, evidently. You remember in Matthew chapter 8, where we were a few Sunday nights ago, how that the demoniacs came out to meet the Lord Jesus as he landed in Gadara, and they came out from among the tombs. Well, again, this is an evidence of spiritism, of demonic activity. When I pastored in the Republic of Ireland uh, on All Saints Day, uh, they would uh, have a mass that would be held uh, for the dead, and specifically for the dead, and the Catholic people would gather in the local cemetery, and there they would bring offerings of flowers and candles and prayers of blessing uh, for the graves of loved ones who were going on before, and, and felt that somehow or other in doing that they were both pleasing God and also the memory of the deceased. But this is exactly what the Jews were doing. This is more connected with paganism than it is with Christianity or Judaism. You know, even among charismatics and charismatic circles now, they engage in a thing known as grave sucking or grave soaking or uh, mantle grabbing. And so the idea is that that, uh, one comes and they either touch or lie across a physical grave of a deceased preacher or evangelist. And the idea is that they are pulling out the power of the Holy Spirit which has been trapped in that dead body. I mean, that's just pure paganism. That's absolute paganism. You cannot in any sense connect that with biblical Christianity. You know, I watched a, a video just uh, yesterday or the day before on this as I was preparing for this, because uh, I had never actually seen somebody doing this. I'd heard of it, but I thought, there's got to be a video of this on YouTube. And there's a video of everything on YouTube, isn't there? 
And so, sure enough, there were videos on YouTube of people who were uh, grave-sucking or grave-soaking. Right here in England, uh, up in, I think up in Nottingham, they were at the grave of the old Pentecostal uh, preacher Smith Wigglesworth. And uh, they were sucking his power out of the grave, so, uh, so to speak, as though somehow or other the Holy Spirit was contained uh, within the rotten bones uh, of dead saints. This stuff is abhorrent to God. Then notice they provoked God also by their brazen lawlessness, breaching the dietary code of the law, eating pork and other foods that were forbidden. They ate swine's flesh and broth of abominable things. If you want to know what kind of abominable things, if you turn the chapter in, uh, to chapter 66 and verse 17, uh, they are cited again for this particular sin. They that sanctify themselves and purify themselves in the gardens behind one tree in the midst, eating swine's flesh and the, abom and the abomination and the mouse shall be consumed together, saith the Lord. They were eating rodents. Anyone for mouse soup? Even Gentiles don't eat mice usually unless they're Chinese, I think. But other than that, I don't think that most Gentiles eat rodents. They provoked God by their spiritual pride. Look at verse 5, saying, Stand by thyself, come not near to me, for I am holier than thou. I mean, look at those words. Don't even come near to me. You know, can you imagine somebody speaking to you in those terms? I'm so holy, you don't, don't even come near to me. I am holier than you. That was their spiritual pride. And God says, that it's, a, it's a smoke in my nose, a fire that burns all day. God says, I'm burning up. You know, I, I'm, I'm hot against these people when I see them behaving this way. They were proud religious people. And you ought not to miss the point here, folks. Uh, people uh, who are involved in false religion of whatever flavor you care to mention, uh, any religion that's not founded upon the truth of God, are very often filled with self-righteousness and with great pride. You know, there are people who are very proud of their church and very proud of their denomination, whatever that may be. And they don't care that the church may never open the Bible or preach the Bible or preach the gospel. It matters not one bit to them. They have their worship, their rituals, their liturgy, and they're perfectly happy with that. Thank you very much. They'd rather have all of that than a true understanding of the gospel and the word of God. Now notice the prospect for these rebellious people. Verse 6. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silence, but will recompense, even recompense, into their bosom. Your iniquities and the iniquities of your fathers together, saith the Lord, which have burned incense upon the mountains and blasphemed me upon the hills. Therefore will I measure their former work into their bosom. Verse 11. But ye are they that forsake the Lord, that forget my holy mountain, that prepare a table for that troop, and that furnish the drink offering unto that number. Therefore will I number you to the sword, and you shall all bow down to the slaughter, because when I called, you did not answer. When I spake, you did not hear, but did evil before mine eyes, and did choose that wherein I delighted not. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, 
but ye shall be ashamed. Behold, my servants shall sing for joy, but ye shall cry for sorrow of heart, and shall howl for vexation of spirit, and ye shall leave your name for a curse unto my chosen. For the Lord God shall slay thee, and call his servants by another name, that he who blesseth himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth, and he that sweareth in the earth shall swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten, and because they are hid from mine eyes. Now verses 6 and 7 are hinge verses. They are what is known in biblical literature as chiastic. It's a structure of a verse in which the words are repeated in reverse order so as to give a particular emphasis to something. And what you have in verses 6 and 7 in the middle section, you really have a summation of what you read in verses 2 to 5. Your iniquities and the iniquities of your fathers together, saith the Lord, which have burned incense upon the mountains and blasphemed me upon the hills. Now, either side of that, sandwiching that thought in we find a message of God's judgment to the rebellious Israelites. Notice verse 6, Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silence, but will recompense, even recompense into their bosom, to the end of verse 7. Therefore will I measure their former work into their bosom. So here we see three things concerning the judgment of God upon his people. Their judgment, first of all, is sure. He says, I will not keep silent. God says, I'm not going to ignore your sins. I'm not going to treat you differently than anybody else. You know, I'm no respecter of persons. You're not going to get away with things that others are not getting away with. No, no, I will not keep silence. Their judgment is personal. He says, I'll recompense it into their bosom. He says, it's coming back to you. And then their judgment is just. He says, I will measure their former work. You see, every judgment of God is according to works. Now, of course, we're not saved by works. We're saved by grace, but our lives are judged according to our works. Whether we're saved or whether we're lost, our works will be taken into account for the saved with respect to reward and with the lost with respect to their damnation. But their works will be taken into account. So God is just. Now we come to verses 11 and 12, and these are very interesting verses. Where the Lord says, But ye are they that forsake the Lord, that forget my holy mountain, that prepare a table for that troop, and furnish the drink offering unto that number. Therefore will I number you to the sword, and ye shall bow down to the slaughter, because when I called, you did not answer. When I speak, you did not hear, but did evil before mine eyes, and did choose that wherein I delighted not. Now what you have in verses 11 to 16 really is the consequences of their rebellion. They have forsaken the Lord. They have forsaken his holy mountain. They've forsaken his temple. They have prepared, notice, a table for that troop. Do you see that phrase? And and a drink offering for that number. Who are that troop? What is that number? What does that mean? Well, the Hebrew words are interesting. The Hebrew word for that troop is gadi, G-A-D-I. And for that number is the word many, M-E-N-I. And those words mean fortune and destiny. He says, you have prepared a table for fortune, a drink offering for destiny. Now, these are the names of gods, fortune and destiny. And in an attempt to win the favor of these pagan gods and to gain good luck in the future, they were making offerings to these pagan gods. You know, when someone wishes you good luck, they're really saying good fortune, aren't they? 
Or sometimes if we have some happy circumstance in life, we might say, well, that was fortunate. Or that was lucky. That was a lucky escape, we say. So what we have in the terms that troop and that number are the names of pagan gods. And later in history, these become identified with the planet Jupiter, who's the greater luck, and the planet Venus, who is the lesser luck. So luck is rooted in superstition and paganism. And here's the thing. As Christians, we don't believe in luck. You know, we should never really say to each other, good luck. Because luck doesn't come into it. Rather, we trust in the providence of God that he directs our affairs, that he blesses according to his perfect will, and we accept whatever comes from his hands. But it's very interesting, again, that many today are also bowing down to the gods of fortune and destiny when they, when they do the lottery, you know, the national lottery. What's the symbol of the national lottery? Crossed fingers. Good luck. Uh, you know, here's hoping. Now, as a consequence of all their idolatry, their superstition, their occultism, their lawlessness, their spiritual pride, Israel was to be put to the sword. But notice in verse 12, where the root cause of their woes lay. Because when I called, you did not answer. When I speak, you did not hear. But did evil before mine eyes, and did choose that wherein I delighted not. Now, the Gentiles whom God did not call, ultimately seek him out. You know, here we all are, a church full of Gentiles. We sought him out. We accept that the God of Israel is the God of truth. We accept that Jesus is the Messiah whom he sent, his own dear son. We accept these things. Whereas the Jews whom he did call rejected him. They rejected him then, and they're rejecting him largely now. And so they would be cursed of him, and their memory would be cursed of him, according to verses 13 uh, to 15. Now we see here that in contrast with the believing remnant, their name is going to be lost, but a new name is going to be given. Look at verse 15. And you shall leave your name for a curse unto my chosen, for the Lord God shall slay thee, and call his servants by another name. Now we perhaps have an indication of what that other name is. Back in chapter 63 and verse 2. Oh, have I got the right chapter here? Chapter 62, sorry. And verse 2. And the Gentiles shall see thy righteousness, and all kings thy glory, and thou shalt be called by a new name which the mouth of the Lord shall name. Thou shalt no more be termed forsaken, neither shall thy land, in verse 4, be any more termed desolate, but thou shalt be called Hephzibah, and thy land Beulah, for the Lord delighteth in thee, and thy land shall be married. And so you have the definition of those names, Hephzibah, meaning the Lord delights in her, and Beulah, meaning married. So it may well be that those are the names that Israel will go by uh, once uh, everything is settled and the nation is finally judged. Now, look at the prospect in contrast for the remnant. Verses 8 through 10. Let's read there. 
It says, Thus saith the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and one saith, Destroy it not, for a blessing is in it, so will I do for my servants' sakes, that I may not destroy them all. Now, you notice that. There are people who suggest today that God is finished with Israel, that he has no future for that nation. But God's word says, I may not destroy them all. He says, I'm going to deal with them as a nation overall, but not all of them are going to disappear, so to speak. Not all of them are going to be judged. And I will bring forth a seed out of Jacob, and out of Judah an inheritor of my mountains, and mine elect shall inherit it, and my servants shall dwell there. And Sharon shall be a fold of flocks, and the valley of Achor a place for the herds to lie down in for my people that have sought me. Let's go to verse 17. For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come into mind. But be ye glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem a rejoicing, and her people a joy. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem, and joy in my people. And the voice of weeping shall be no more heard in her, nor the voice of crying. There shall be no more thence an infant of days, nor an old man that hath not filled his days. For the child shall die an hundred years old. But the sinner being an hundred years old shall be accursed. And they shall build houses and inhabit them. And they shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree are the days of my people, and mine elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands, they shall not labor in vain nor bring forth for trouble. For they are the seed of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. And it shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together, and the lion shall eat straw like the bullock. And dust shall be the serpent's meat. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, saith the Lord. Now notice verse 8, first of all, which describes the remnant as a new wine that is found in the cluster. Now, uh, by way of an aside, if you notice here, there's a reference to new wine. And uh, there are those who would tell us that every reference to wine in the Bible is alcoholic. But here's a proof text that tells us differently. Because here is new wine that is in the cluster. And you do not get alcoholic wine in a cluster. This is referring to fresh grapes, to sweet grapes upon the vine. Now that's an aside, but I want you to see the picture is of a decaying vineyard, which is producing nothing but sour grapes, a very bad harvest of grapes. And uh, in the midst of it all, there is this cluster of new wine, this cluster of sweet grapes. And because of these, this presence of these sweet grapes, the owner of the vineyard chooses not to destroy it. In other words, he says, there is a little bit of hope for this vineyard as long as it's producing some sweet grapes. So this is a picture, really, of the godly remnant who dwelt within apostate Judah. The Isaiahs, the Jeremiahs, the Ezekiels, the Daniels, and others. And because of the remnant, Israel would not be completely destroyed, but rather would be saved. Look in Matthew chapter 24 for a moment. Matthew chapter 24, we're into the Olivet Discourse. Matthew chapter 24. Verse 21, notice what it says, 
For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should be no flesh saved. But for the elect's sake, who are the elect? It's, Israel, it's believing Israel. Believing Israel are the elect. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. In other words, God says the, out, the outworking of the tribulation period is on the cusp of absolutely destroying Israel, of taking Israel from the face of the earth and removing her presence from the land forever. And other than that, other than that, that God steps in and puts a, brings an end to those days that there will be some saved, that a remnant are saved. Uh, look back in Isaiah chapter 10. Isaiah chapter 10. Verse 22. It says, For though thy people Israel be as the sand of the sea, yet a remnant of them shall return. The consumption decree shall overflow with righteousness, for the Lord of hosts shall make a consumption, even determined in the midst of all the land. Notice, a remnant of them shall return. Let's look in Jeremiah chapter 30. Jeremiah chapter 30 and verse 7. Verse 7 reminds us of the coming day of trouble for Israel, the day of Jacob's trouble, the time of Jacob's trouble. And it says in verse 7, Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. That's exactly what the Lord Jesus said of the coming great tribulation. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be, notice, saved out of it. For it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off thy neck, and will burst thy bonds, and strangers shall no more serve themselves of him. But they shall serve the Lord their God, and David their king, whom I will raise up unto them. Remember that David the prince is going to be seated in the millennial temple, along with the ruling Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, in verse 10, Fear thou not, O servant Jacob, saith the Lord. Neither be dismayed, O Israel. For lo, I will save thee from afar, and thy seed from the land of their captivity. And Jacob shall return, and shall be in rest, and be quiet, and none shall make him afraid. For I am with thee, saith the Lord, to save thee. Though I make a full end of all nations, whether I have scattered thee, yet will I notice not make a full end of thee, but will correct thee in measure, exactly what Isaiah said, and will not leave thee altogether unpunished. And then go to Isaiah chapter 65 then and let's, let's uh, read verse 9 together, uh, that passage where we are. It says, And I will bring forth a seed out of Jacob and out of Judah. That's exactly what the other prophets were saying. In an, an inheritor of my mountains and mine what? Is that word? Elect. What the Lord, who did the Lord Jesus say would be saved? Following the the elect, it's the same term. And mine elect shall inherit it, and my servants shall dwell there. Then in the first hand, and Sharon shall be a fold of flocks, and the valley of Achor, a place for the herds to lie down, and, uh, and for my people that have sought me. Now Sharon and Achor are areas of Israel that lie to the west and to the east. 
In other words, they are used here to comprise the entire land, both sides of the land, east and west. And the Lord says, I'm going to bless the whole land. It's interesting that he chooses these two particular localities because Sharon was, is, a, is a fertile stretch of land that reaches all the way down uh, from Galilee down, down to the south. And uh, when armies invaded Israel, that was the route they took. They came in through Sharon, through that area, from Mount Carmel on down through the Jezreel Valley and heading on down. And so in that respect, Sharon is a place that is associated with God's judgment upon the nation. Remember, that's the route the Babylonians are going to take when they come in and take the nation captive. But Achor uh, is, a, is a place of trouble also. And it's the place associated with the stoning of Achan in Joshua chapter 7. You remember how Achan took the goods from, uh, from Jericho and hid them in his tent? And uh, he was judged of it, he and his entire family, and they were stoned to death. They were stoned to death in the valley of Achor. And so God takes these two places, which are reminders of a turbulent past for Israel and of the sin of Israel in the past, and he turns them into a place of blessing, a thing of blessing, and he shows them that their future, as far as the remnant is concerned, is bright and blessed. So with their past behind them, their future now is revealed in verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come into mind. So what you have there is a statement about eternity. We know that from the book of Revelation, chapter 21, where as the page turns to that chapter, we enter into the eternal state. John writes, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. Peter also makes reference to this in uh, 2 Peter and uh, chapter 3 and verse 12. He says, we're looking for and hasting on to the coming of the day of God. That's the eternal day, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and the new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. So having set eternity before them, he says, listen, this is what lies ahead for the righteous, for the remnant. You're going to be uh, inhabitants of a new heaven and a, a new earth. You're going to enjoy the blessings of eternity. But having now laid that blessing before them, he takes a little step back into time. And he deals with some of the blessings of the millennial age and how they, as the godly remnant, will be benefited and blessed during that period of time. How they will experience the joys of God's covenants with Abraham and with David unfolding before them. Notice verse 19, their joy, verse 18 and 19 of their joy is set out. I create Jerusalem, a rejoicing in her people, a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. And the voice of weeping shall be no more heard in her, nor the the voice of crying. Now remember, this is the very city that the Lord Jesus looked over and wept as he was departing the temple campus just before his crucifixion. This is the same city of Jerusalem to whom he told his citizens, daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Now we find there is no such weeping because there's coming a day when they will be filled with joy. Notice their longevity in verse 20. 
There shall be no more thence an infant of days, nor an old man that hath not filled his days. For the child shall die an hundred years old, but the sinner being a hundred years old shall be accursed. Now let me tell you that this verse blows the minds of most amillennialists. Because for amillennialists, we're in the kingdom, right? We're, right now is the kingdom. This is as good as it's getting till Jesus comes. And that's not that good, is it? So the difficulty they have is that they read verse 17, speaking of eternity, and they drag eternity into the remainder of the chapter. And they say all of the remaining verses are speaking about eternity. But you get to verse 20 and you're in trouble. Why? Because you have death and you have sin. How can you have death and sin in eternity? It makes no sense whatsoever. And so I've, I've listened to a millennial brethren explaining this verse. And honestly, I sit there, you know, I was, I was on holiday one time. And I went to a church that was a millennial on holiday. And uh, the, the, the pastor, the preacher was opening to this passage. And as soon as he announced this text, as soon as he announced this text, I thought to myself, this is going to be great. <laughs> and sure enough, he didn't let me down. It was great. He was doing somersaults trying to get around this verse. Look, you can't get around this verse. It's speaking about the kingdom age on earth. It's not talking about eternity. It's not talking about the new heaven and the new earth. It's talking about the coming kingdom of Christ and his rule and reign from Jerusalem. Now, during the millennial age, of course, we will not die. Why? Because we will have been raptured and glorified and will have returned with the Lord Jesus to the earth. But there will be people who go through the great tribulation, these who are the elect, these who uh, would be lost if indeed God did not curtail the length of the tribulation period, they go into the kingdom in their mortal bodies. They marry in the kingdom. They bear children in the kingdom. Their children are born as our children are born, as we were born, as mortals with a sin nature. So there is a presence of sin in the kingdom age. And, in, and you know as well as I do that the wages of sin is death. There's going to be death in the millennial period. Now, that's interesting uh, that you have this presence of sin and death, and yet it would seem, according to this verse, that in terms of his lifespan, mankind returns to pre-Noic conditions. People start living much longer again. Hundreds of years. And so that if somebody dies at a hundred years of age, you'll consider them an infant. An infant. Now, if somebody dies at 100 years of age now, we say, didn't he have a good innings? Wasn't that a good old age to die in? But in the millennial kingdom, they say, my goodness, he was just a strip of a lad. <laughs> just 100 years old. Hadn't he, I barely celebrated his 100th birthday. We'll think about, about it differently. And, uh, you know, let's look at Zechariah for a moment, because Zechariah kind of touches upon this idea also when he talks about the old and the young in the, uh, in the, eternal, uh, in the millennial kingdom. It says, For thus saith the Lord of hosts, there shall yet old men and old women dwell in the streets of Jerusalem, 
and every man with his staff in his hand for every age, for very age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets thereof. Now, uh, you know, I, years ago, I was in, you know, we were very saddened in, in, in our church to lose a, a child uh, among our fellowship of just 11 years old. And uh, one of the verses, a preacher came by to visit. He was a very well-meaning preacher. He came by to visit the church family and offer his condolences and while he was there, he gave verse 5 to the mother and said, Look, this is heaven. Heaven is, is uh, full of boys and girls playing in the streets. Well, if you think about that, just think about that for a moment. If that's the case, then children who die at the age of 11 are that age forever. Do you really think that's God's will? That God wills babies to remain as babies forever. For 11-year-olds to remain as 11-year-olds. No, this is talking about the millennial kingdom. And it's interesting that Zechariah focuses upon the most vulnerable people in society. The very elderly and the very young. And he says of the elderly that they'll be able to dwell in the streets. They'll be able to go out and enjoy the streets. Now, you know, some of you are of years. And, and once you get up in years, you know, certainly after dark, you don't want to be out in the streets, do you? You know, we, I don't know if you saw that appalling video of Professor Chris Whiffy being attacked. I mean, regardless of what you think about him, you know, he's not a young man. He shouldn't, you know, two for two young fellas to rough him up like that is absolutely unforgivable. It's reprehensible. And, and yet that's what our streets are like. So the elderly fear sometimes to go out into the streets in case they are accosted or they're mugged in some way. And then, of course, many parents today are afraid to put their children in the streets for fear of molestation or abduction. And yet Zechariah sees the kingdom coming, and he says, you know, when the Lord Jesus gets here, the streets are going to be full of old people, and they're going to be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. I love that imagery. So we see the longevity of the period where people will live many hundreds of years older than they do now, and also the freedom that the kingdom brings. But notice the security that the kingdom brings back in Isaiah chapter 61 and verses 21 to 23. And they shall build houses, speaking of the Jewish people, the godly remnant, those who come into the kingdom, even in their mortal bodies, they shall build houses and inhabit them. And they shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree are the days of my people, and mine elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth for trouble, for they are the seed of the blessed. They are the seed of the blessed. Who is that? Back in verse 9, I will bring forth a seed out of Jacob. They are the seed of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. Notice their offspring comes with them. So here are people who are entering in as a godly remnant into the kingdom age. And what? They're blessed of the Lord. No longer are they going to find that they're uh, accused of occupation of the land. No longer is it going to be suggested that as Jews they're involved in, a, in an exercise of land grabbing. 
No longer will they live under the threat of renewed borders, of revised borders, so that the homes that they've built are suddenly thrust into Arab land and possessed by people who never constructed those homes. That's all going to change. Verse 24 tells us not just about their security, but the care of God for them during that time. And it shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. Now, notice the difference in their spiritual condition from those to whom the Lord was calling and who would not hear. Here are people who are in such complete harmony with God's will that they actually want precisely what he wants. So he even answers before they ask. They're completely in tune with the will of God. And then verse 25 speaks about the harmony in the land. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the bullock. And dust shall be the serpent's meat. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, saith the Lord. So we see in that last verse that to a large degree, the earth goes back to Edenic conditions, back to how it was in the Garden of Eden to some degree. And the world again becomes almost as a paradise. And natural predators are put at rest with each other. They live in harmony uh, with each other. The wolf uh, and the lamb, uh, the lion eating straw rather than eating meat. The only animal that isn't uh, indeed included in this blessing notice is the serpent. The serpent shall continue to eat dust even as he did when he was cursed in Genesis chapter 3 for his part in the satanic deception. So, you know, here is this still this fearsome, slithering creature that will still be, you know, on the, on the ground, uh, slithering along the earth. And every time we see one, we'll be reminded, and the people of that age will be reminded of the reality of sin and of death and what the devil originally brought into the world. A high bright is the future for God's people. When I read about the millennium, I find it exciting. It's going to be a completely different world. You know, I, I wonder if they have, will have news broadcasts, but they'll all start with, here's the good news. <laughs> no bad news, just good news. Here's the good news. And how, how good that, you know, the former things, well, they shall not be remembered. You know, in eternity, the former things are, are gone. You know, the things we remember, the things that we focus on, our feelings, our flaws, our flops, well, they'll be forgotten, gone forever. And there'll be nothing left but for us to enjoy the presence of our God for all eternity. Now, that's what heaven is about. Heaven is not a, it's not a fair ground. You know, it's it's not some kind of pleasure garden that is just there for man's enjoyment. Heaven is about the presence of God. It's his presence that makes heaven heaven. And it's his presence that we will enjoy the most when we enter into both the kingdom age and then into eternity proper. Which is where chapter 66 now leads us. Because chapter 66 is going to focus upon the greatness of God. If you look at verse 1, Thus saith the Lord, The heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you build on to me, and where is the place of my rest? He says, Is there anybody as great as me? <laughs> and the answer is obvious. No, there isn't. You know, are you able to really do something for me? Not really, Lord. Because you've done it all for us. 
And so this next chapter, which Lord willing we'll look at next week, focuses on God's supreme power and glory and ends on this high note and makes him the focus of the future. And that's where we will conclude our studies in Isaiah, Lord willing, next Wednesday night. Amen? Let's leave it there for this evening. Shall we pray? Lord, again, we come before your throne. We are, Lord, we are so humbled. We're humbled, sinful as we are, that you have such.